Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And um, just three verses we're going to look at tonight. And I was thinking about the things that Solomon says in there. I think um, some of them are the ones, for me anyway, that struck me as kind of uh, odd. And uh, hopefully we can give you a better explanation of that so that it makes a little bit more sense. It's, it's fairly simple, so uh, we're not going to have to do any technical things or anything like that. Just I think, I think when you see what he is saying and why he's saying it that way, and then it, ah, the light bulbs will come on. And um, as I thought about this, because he talks about some end-of-life issues and stuff, it made me think about the reading of a will. And sometimes when we say the reading of a will, we think about people gathering in a lawyer's office, you know, with all the bookcases and all of that kind of intimidating type stuff. And then the lawyer opens up the will and then begins to read it out. You know, that really never happens, but um, it's what makes a good movie or a good TV show. And when we think about things like the will of God, we generally think of what does God want me to do? But that term, the will of God, is taken from a a legal thing. It's like God opens up his will, and a will is the final instructions. And that's what God gives us in like the Great Commission, and that is, what is his will? What are his instructions for me? What has he laid out for me? And it has to do with our inheritance and our position in Christ. It's kind of a wonderful thing when you look at it that way. What is God doing for me when I read his word he is giving me his will and that's why it's called last will and testament you ever noticed old testament new testament that's the reading of the will what God wants us to do now sometimes it gets a little uh, funny when you think about the reading of a will in human terms a lot of people are you know have high expectations And um, I read about one guy, he was very wealthy, and a lawyer was reading the will of this man to the people mentioned in the will, and he said, to you, my loving wife, Rose, who stood by me through tough times as well as good times, I leave you the house and two million dollars. Hey, that's not bad, is it? The lawyer continued, to my daughter, Jessica, who looked after me in sickness, kept the business going. I leave her the yacht, the business, and $1 million. Not bad. The lawyer concluded and said, To my cousin Dan, who hated me, argued with me, and thought I would never mention him in my will, well, you're wrong. Hi, Dan. (laughs) How do you imagine that would go? There's another one. uh, Due to inherit a furniture factory... When his uh, sickly widower father died, Clyde decided that he needed a woman to enjoy it with. So going to a cafe, he met a woman whose beauty took his breath away. I'm only an ordinary man, he said, walking up to her. But in just a week or two, my father will die and I'll inherit a $20 million business. The woman went home with Clyde. And the next day, she became his stepmother. (laughs) Let that sink in. There you go. So uh, sometimes some strange things happen uh, when you get into the reading of the will. So uh, make sure yours is in order. You never know. Uh, Ecclesiastes 7, verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment. And the day of death than the day of one's birth. Better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by a sad countenance the heart is made better. The heart Of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. That's some strange writing. 
And it goes counter to anything we would ever think. I would much rather be hearing uh, a stand-up comedian than go to a funeral, right? I'd rather be laughing. I'd rather be happy. I'd rather be positive than grieving and gloomy and all of that. Oh, man, I can remember. Do you remember the first funeral you went to? I can remember the first one I went to. It was for my great-grandmother. I didn't really know her. Um, I do remember as she got older, my mom made me go to see her in the nursing home one time. And, boy, that was just a scary experience for a little kid. And whenever uh, we had to go to the funeral, it was in downtown Rogers, Arkansas, in this big old Victorian house that was a funeral home well if you're a little kid back then in the late 60s and you watch any tv at all you know there's nothing good that comes out of those big old spooky houses and they took us in the back way and brought us into this dark room and they set us back there you know they used to always set the fa- seat the families back in those rooms you know where nobody could see them and they'd have those weird you know, slats or something like that or curtains or something like that. Remember that? And so they take us in there and I'm looking around and I'm I'm just thinking this is not going to be good at all. And uh, we sat down there and there's organ music playing and they left the casket open for the whole service. And I'm thinking if she gets up out of there, I'm out of here, you know, that kind of stuff. I mean, I'd seen on TV what happens in those kind of houses and places, and I didn't want anything to do with it. And, uh, you know, somebody starts singing, you know, I'll meet you in the morning. I didn't know what that meant, Uh, you know, and so to this day, I don't like that song. And I don't like precious memories or some of that. Just, oh, you know, do something happy. And uh, I remember just being really, really, really creeped out, you know, by the whole thing. And um, to this day, you know, I've told you before, when I go to do a funeral, then the funeral director says, Reverend, would you like to go in the back way? Nope. I don't want to see anything. I don't want to touch anything. I don't want to hear anything. I'll walk right up the center aisle and, you know, just do all of that. I just, I don't like that kind of stuff. So I guess I'm still a little squeamish on some of that. Anybody in here know what I mean by that kind of stuff? I just don't, I just don't like it. Just don't like it. And so when I hear Solomon say, it's better to go to a house where someone has died, and my first reaction is, well, Solomon, you've never been a pastor. That's no fun. And people expect you to come in there, and I don't know what you're supposed to do, but there are no words you can say. That make everybody go, oh, we were sad, but now we're happy again. You, you fix that. I have no idea what to do. They don't train you in that. And any training would be inadequate because everybody's different. And every situation is different. And it's just a sad time. Period. And um, I'm not sure that people would appreciate you trying to lighten the mood or anything. In fact, the older I get and the more I know about things... It's really true that we need to grieve. If you hold it all in, that really is not a good thing. And um, it's, it's something that you need to let it out because there's a lot of stress in grieving. And if you hold it in, all of that pressure and everything is going to affect you mentally and it's going to affect you physically. It's just better to get it out. And uh, sometimes we try to alleviate grief and we try to, you know, say some things that, you know, when you don't know what to say, you can say some things that are really stupid, can't you? And uh, you meant well, but it may hurt and it may, I don't know, it's just, it's just kind of hard. So I read these verses and my natural reaction is, what in the world are you talking about? I would never tell anybody that was having a birthday party, you know what, this would be a whole lot better if it were a funeral. I would never, but doesn't that sound like what Solomon is kind of saying? And if you read it with the rest of Ecclesiastes, I mean, I kind of could see Solomon getting to that point because there are some statements in here where you wonder about his mental health and you wonder what in the world is he really thinking and and why is he writing in such a, a cryptic and morbid way? But that's exactly how it seems as it comes across. Is there any explanation for this? Well, let's read it again. It's only three verses, right? Look at this. A good name is better than precious ointment. 
Okay, why in the world would he tie that to all of this stuff about death? And the day of death better than the day of one's birth? Better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting? For that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. Verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter. Who says? I mean, isn't Solomon the one that said that uh, a cheerful heart doeth good like a medicine? Uh, what, what in the world? What are we talking about here? Sorrow is better than laughter. For by a sad countenance, the heart is made better. Now that's something you probably ought to circle and think about because that puts everything he just said into some kind of perspective. By sorrow, the heart is made better. And that kind of gives me a clue in verse 4. I said we were doing three verses, but uh, it's more than that. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. And he's going to go on in this chapter to say that the laughter of a fool is like the crackling of thorns under a pot. What in the world? And yet we live in a world that wants to laugh everything off. We make fun of God, we make fun of death, we make fun of heaven, we make fun of hell, we make fun of morality, we make fun of righteousness. And oh boy, if you get a stand-up comedian that can say a four-letter word, the whole place just erupts in laughter and you think about it and you go, that's really not funny. And not even from a moral standpoint, just from a logical standpoint, saying that one word did not make everything funny except that fools love to laugh at sin. Isn't that right? They love to make fun of it. And Solomon is saying that that's a worthless, foolish pursuit. Because there are some things that we need to know and we need to understand. And these are things that we are not doing a very good job of passing on to our children. The Jews had a way of passing on their heritage, their customs, their traditions... Excuse me, you ever seen Fiddler on the Roof? They had a way of doing that even back in the times of Moses, in the times of Jesus. They would pass that on. And they would instill in their children, especially their sons, the idea that you are going to inherit land that was given to us by Joshua, who was the assistant to Moses who was the man of God who brought our people out of slavery from Egypt. This is the land where our ancestor Abraham walked. And God promised him this land. And there is no other explanation for the Jews inhabiting that land even today other than the will of God. And they got that. It was important for them to observe the traditions because this is not just something that our family does, meaning our immediate family. This is what our parents did. This is what our grandparents did. This is what our great-grandparents did. And all the way back to Moses. And it was important to them to hold that, to treasure that. Remember the times in the Old Testament when God would do something like let them walk across the Jordan River on dry land to inherit Canaan? Remember what they did? They piled up stones. They piled up stones. And they said those stones are set there as a monument. What is that for? Because some kid one day is going to ask, I'll be King James here, okay? What meaneth these stones? It's not a bad thing to ask. What's this all about? And they had an answer for them. This is where your great-grandparents walked across from that side of the Jordan over to here because of the promises of God. Moses told in Deuteronomy, parents, you're to teach these things to your children. 
Now, whenever we think of teaching, we think of a setting like this or a school setting or something like that, but not Moses and not the Jews. They said you're supposed to talk about these things when you're eating, when you're walking, when you're getting ready to go to bed, and when you are waking up. This was a part of their life. Judaism was a cradle-to-grave religion, and it was every day, not just the Sabbath. It was the way you ate. It was what you ate. It was what you wore. It was how you spoke. All of that was controlled by their religion. No wonder, no wonder after all of these thousands of years, there are so many races of people in the Bible that you couldn't find if you tried. Even ancestry DNA can't find it, right? But you can find Jews everywhere in the world. And they hold on to those kind of things. And they've held on to their identity and, and, and to their culture because parents were intentional about teaching their children these things. And they would pass it on and they would pass it on. It's kind of the model for what Paul told Timothy. The things you have received from me... Commit thou to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's the way the church is supposed to be. We're supposed to pass on traditions. We're supposed to pass on our knowledge and passing on our doctrine and passing on our lifestyle. Not that it would become a, why do you do it? Oh, we just do it because that's what we've always done. Not that at all. But so that there might be some rootedness. I think today... When you look around and you see the church culture, why are we not impacting society? We've got bigger churches than ever before. And yet overall church attendance is declining and our influence is waning as well. And I think it's because when you have a pop-up church here and a pop-up church here and a new church here and all of that kind of stuff, there's nothing that really solidifies and roots us together. We're all kind of an entrepreneurial free-for-all. It's like starting a fast food restaurant. It's like doing something like that. Oh, I think I want a church. I don't really like anything else that's going on. I'll start my own. And they come, and a lot of them have gone. There are several churches in the area that I've kind of watched that kind of came up, and they didn't survive. Some of them have, and some of them seem to do quite well, and maybe they'll, they'll do a good job of discipleship. We can always hope for that and pray for that. But if we don't pass it on to a new generation, and if we're not intentional about it with our own kids and with our own grandkids, then what is it that's going to root us together? And things change so fast now because of technology. And your kids are able to access volumes of information that were not available to you you had to listen to mom and dad you had to listen to a teacher you had to listen to your grandparents and you maybe didn't know any other way but now kids are getting so much they're being bombarded with all of these things and it's not always not always a good thing because there's something, I think, within the human spirit made by God. We want to be planted. We want to be rooted. We want to draw nourishment from the past, from those who have gone on before us. We want to be like a tree in the forest that grows stronger and taller and more fruitful, but yet is deeply rooted in that soil. We need that. And I think this world is kind of crying out for all of those kind of things and yet they can't find them anywhere they can't find them and for the church for believers that's the kind of thing we need to be deeply rooted in these things and these are some things we need to think about and pass on to our kids so number one I would say this and this is one of those things that we just don't really get much anymore you are always uh, you always represent someone or something a good name is to be treasured a good name a good name think about what that means knowing your heritage knowing where you came from knowing the family struggles knowing the good the bad and the ugly making sure that each generation is improving upon what the previous generation did I mean, that would be the right way to go and the right thing to have. And there used to be a time when uh, 
Protecting the family name was sacred. And it was a responsibility that everyone felt. I don't want to disgrace my father. I don't want to disgrace my mother. I don't want to disgrace my ancestors. And when you lived on farms and inherited land like that, people grew up in a place where maybe three, four, five generations before, their flesh and blood walked before they were ever thought of. That's the fence my grandfather built. This is the part of the house that my great-great-grandfather built. We've expanded it because there are more people now. But you walk in that one room and you would feel something. And I don't mean that in a spooky way. In the same way that you would feel if you were in Plymouth, Massachusetts. And you walk into one of those buildings that the pilgrims stood in. You would feel something. It's the same thing you feel when maybe you go to the nation's capital or you go to Arlington Memorial Cemetery and you see all of those rows of gravestones. You feel something and you feel connected and you get a sense of history and you get a sense of something bigger than you and bigger than your life. I'm afraid that in our generation there are not many people who really feel or sense that. Everything's a scandal. Everything is to tear down history. Everything is to tear down heroes. And that's not just true in the culture. That's also true in the family. And when we think about a good name, maybe you didn't inherit a good name. Maybe you didn't inherit something that you were proud of. But you know, you can change that by the grace of God. And you can give your children a new start in a new future. When I uh, look back at my father's side of the family, they were not good people. And I would be among the first generation, and a few of my cousins were too, to be raised in a Christian home on the Keenan side. On the Keenan side, there were outlaws, there were rough people, there were abusive people, and ungodly people, and immoral people. You know, I told you I was at a reunion not terribly long ago where my aunt walks up and introduces me to my dad's half-brother. Grandpa was not always a moral man. Some of you have families like that, don't you? And where you look around and you see drunkenness and abuse and uh, nothing godly and no respect for God or anything like that at all. Bitter, mean people. And uh, that's kind of where, on that side of the family, my roots come from. Now, my mom's family, it was a little better. Uh, my grandpa and grandma didn't get saved until later in life, but they were at least nice people. And uh, you can go on back, and on my mom's side, there was a, her great uncle was killed on Normandy Beach. That's kind of a thing to be uh, happy about, come from some good people like that. When you trace the side of the family, their last name was Finn, F-I-N-N, Irish people. And uh, you can find some bad people in there. There was a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego O'Finn that came from Ireland and came over here and they got in, well, they robbed a train and had to run for their lives. So, you know, you have the good, the bad, and the ugly. At the same time, there's a Peter Finn who served under George Washington in the Revolutionary War. I carry the DNA of a Revolutionary War veteran. That's kind of cool. You find those things in your family, the good and the bad and the ugly. You want to learn from the bad. You want to improve on all of those kind of things. And then you also want to have a sense of, of heritage that sort of launches you into the future. That's why the Bible talks about children being like arrows, pulling back the bow. One generation launches the next one out into uh, a new era and a new time. And that's what we're supposed to do even as a church, training up people to go into a generation that we'll never see. To fight battles we'll never be around for that we won't even understand. That's what we're supposed to do. And so when we think about having a good name, Solomon says that it's better than precious ointment. Do you remember the precious ointment? Jesus was 
at a banquet one day and a woman came and she broke an alabaster box that was full of precious ointment and she poured it on his feet and she wept and wiped it with her hair and remember Jesus said she's anointed me for my burial because they never would get to finish that would they the women were going back to finish it and found out that Jesus was uh, resurrected and uh, so it was done beforehand remember how Judas got ticked off this could have been sold and given to the poor why because it was very valuable in those days, having something like that might have been like having a savings account or a retirement fund. Whatever we do, we've got this, and she may have inherited it, and it was something that she could always sell if times ever got tough. So what was she doing? She was kind of taking her future and pouring it out on Jesus in the world's way of thinking it would be wasting it but you never waste what you give to Jesus do you it's always worth it and he's worthy of it and uh, this is the thing that a good name is better than that a good name Solomon says is better than an IRA a good name is better than a 401k a good name is better better than a house that has been made rich off of corruption maybe we can think of names where there's a lot of money, a lot of wealth, and a lot of possessions. But the name, as it comes up, brings shame. An ill reputation. Something that people are not proud of when they do it. And Solomon says, make sure that that's not your name. Are we teaching children to honor their father and their mother? And are we teaching fathers and mothers to act in an honorable way? In my mind, it goes both ways. Are we teaching our children to uphold family honor? That There are some things that grandma and grandpa wouldn't be proud of. And we ought to feel some responsibility as we carry on that name, not to mess it up, not to stain it, <clears throat> not to bring shame upon the name of a family. We ought to strive in our own personal life to have a good name, to pay our bills, to keep our word, to exercise loyalty in relationships, to be servants. To have a sense of legacy, something that we want to pass on. And we want our children and our grandchildren to hear stories about us and how the Lord worked in our lives. We want to be able to have, remember I mentioned those stones that were piled up by the river so that when children say, what do these stones mean? There's a story to tell. I think one of the things Solomon would say to you and to me is, you need some stones. And you need some good stories to go along with the stones. Your children and grandchildren need to know your life and your testimony. They need to know about your struggles. And they need to know how they were led. Uh, those struggles led to victory. They need to know about your faith. They need to know about your values. They need to know these kind of things. It was never designed, never designed by God that your children would go off and receive their education in a school. It was always in the home in Bible times. And then when you get to the New Testament, where some of those people were sent off to pagan Roman schools, what was the design of God? That in the church and in the home, things would be taught that would counteract all of the garbage that they were hearing. You think education's bad now? You should have tried to raise children in first century Rome. Horrible. And yet Christianity survived and thrived. And even Judaism carried on. Why? Because parents were educating their children in the things that really mattered. And more than that, they were living them out. A good name is more valuable than amassing a fortune. Think about that. 
And think about how countercultural that is right now. Because in our America, it's basically if you've got money, you've got power, status, and prestige, and it doesn't really matter how you got it or what you do with it or how you live. You can have the morals of an alley cat, but if you're a celebrity, if you're an actor, if you're a singer, if you're an athlete, if you're a business person, you've got it made and nobody really cares about anything else. And Solomon is coming now to the end of his life, and you know what he's saying? I wish, I wish I hadn't stained my father's name. Isn't it interesting that with all of Solomon's accomplishments, nowhere in the Bible does it ever talk about the house of Solomon or the throne of Solomon. It always goes back to whom? David. Every single time. Back to David. David was the standard because Solomon did not have the good name when he died and he wasted he wasted the inheritance of David by the way that he lived and by the things that he pursued we've got to teach our children to respect the family and to respect the family heritage and remember you always represent someone or something um, Isaac God bar you Tell everybody here what you always tell the teenagers before you go to camp or go on a trip or something. Um, we represent three things. We represent our God, our family, and our church. We represent our God, our family, and our church. And why do you tell them that? Because it's better to bring things that honor those three things, do things that honor those three things, than to do things that shame them. So you want them to bring honor to God, their family, and their church by the way they conduct themselves on a trip rather than bring shame to it. Do you hear that? Isn't that exactly what Solomon was saying? Right? Good job, Isaac. Because you're helping us teach our kids to do that kind of stuff. And I've always been so impressed every time I get ready to pray with our teenagers as they get ready to go on a trip that Isaac tells them that because he wants them to represent God their family, and you, Graceway Baptist Church, and to do it well. Why? Because a good name is more valuable than the things we're teaching our children to do. And we send them off to liberal schools and colleges where their faith is being destroyed and everything that we've tried to teach them is being questioned. And we do that, why? Because, well, they got to make money. And what did Solomon say? Yeah, but if they bring shame to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and if they bring shame to the family, and if they bring shame to the churches of the Lord Jesus, what good did it do for them to become successful, quote-unquote, in the eyes of the world? Think about that. And we're unhooking. It's like we're a train that's chugging down the track. And you know what we're doing in the name of success, we're unhooking some of the cars and letting them just go out on their own. And there's no direction. They're going the wrong way. They're out of control. And we wonder why it's all happening. Because we don't emphasize the things that matter most. A good name is more valuable than oil and precious treasure. So you always represent someone or something. Go to the next set of verses and uh, think about this. The Bible tells us that think long, thinking long term is the best way. What is killing us in our culture? We just can't think beyond the next 10 or 15 minutes. Every alcoholic, every drug addict that I've ever counseled or talked to, they can dream, but you know what their dreams are? Their wishes. That's all they are. I wish. No, they don't say that. But they'll tell you, one of these days, I'm going to get straightened out, and I'm going to get in this business, and I'm going to do all this and this and this, and man, I'm going to have fortune and fame. And that's all thrown out the window the next time their body is craving a drink or a fix. And they can't get beyond that. But they're going to do it one of these days. One of these days. One of these days I'm going to do that. And a dream without a plan 
is nothing more than a wish. And that wishful thinking doesn't get them anywhere. And when those wishes don't come true, what happens? The only place they know how to turn for peace is to whatever is controlling them, whatever they're addicted to, and they never really make it out until they start thinking beyond the next 15 minutes, until they start thinking about their future, and still they, until they start thinking that if I've got this dream and it really is a dream, then I will lay aside anything and everything in order to pursue that dream. And then I'll start taking steps to get to where I'm supposed to be. What are you dreaming about? What is it that you want God to do in your life? What is it that you wish you knew? And what is it that you really were pursuing? And what are you doing to get there? Because if you don't take any steps today, you're not going to make it. Doctors, every time I go, I don't care what I'm talking about. You know what they always tell me? It boils down to this. Eat better and move more. Give me a pill. I'd rather sit in my recliner and take a pill and do that. And they'll say, well, the pill may help and it may be the stopgap measure, but you're never going to have health until you eat better and move more. Is that the best medical science can do? I mean, I had one doctor that tell me, he said, you want to still be able to do what you do now at 90? <laughs> yeah, kind of. And he said, then you got to take steps today to make sure that happens. But you know, uh, with all of my good intentions, I do the same thing that I talked about, the people that are addicted. You know what I do? Yeah, I'm going to start doing that one of these days. And I'm serious about it, man. I'm serious. Because I don't want to be bed fast when I'm 90. I'd rather be up and around. Pass the M&M's. I'm going to stop drinking Coke that's loaded with sugar tomorrow. And I mean it. I mean it. I'm really going to do that tomorrow. And you know what they always, uh, the old saying is, tomorrow never comes, does it? There's always, we're pushing it off. Because we don't think long term in our culture. Everything is throwaway. Everything is disposable. Everything changes so fast. I think it's kind of funny that this millennial generation that is the victim of all of that kind of stuff, they're buying vinyl records. You know why? Because I think deep down in their soul, they're longing for a time that was more stable and a time that made sense. You see, they don't even understand themselves, much less the, cult the culture that they're in. Think about all of the confusion and how quickly things change. And they look back and they see a church with stained glass and they go, Wow, that's cool. My generation said, eh, Stained glass sounds formal and uh, traditional and kind of liberal. I mean, it was the baby boomers that moved us out of all of that. Millennials are looking back and saying, That must have been a neat time. That must have been a neat thing. And they want and they desire some of those roots, but they don't know how to get there because we, the baby boomer generation, were way too rebellious and shifty and we cast off all of these kind of things. We're going to do our own thing, baby. You know? Don't trust anyone over 30. Unhitch, unhook. And look what's happened. And look what kind of people we've raised. And look what it's done to our culture. Why? Because we were the ones that taught them how to be short-term thinkers. Why do I say that? Look at this. And the day of death than the day of one's birth. Better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men. What is? Feasting? No, no, no. The death. That's where everybody is going to head. I don't care if you're 10 years old. I don't care if you're 100 years old. You're all headed to the same place, Solomon said. And the problem is our culture anesthetizes us to the point that we don't really think about death. We don't really think about our long-term health or our long-term finances or our long-term anything. It's all about today, baby. It's all about what makes me happy today. 
And we don't really care about the consequences. We don't really care about anything like that at all. And Solomon is thinking here, you better think about the end. You better think about being old. You better think about failing health. You better think about it because that's where we're all headed. And what you do today makes a huge difference in what happens then. But we don't like to think about those kind of things because I'm really not all that old. You ever get shocked when you look at a picture? Good night. Who's that? Oh, that's me. I look terrible. Now, when I'm just looking out at everything, I'm, you know, I can hang around people that are 20 or 30, and I feel like I'm one of them. And then I see the picture, and I'm not one of them, and they know I'm not one of them. I'm old. I've had some health problems lately. You know what that is? Some of it's foolishness. Some of it is my body is getting ready to go shut down so my soul can go to heaven. I am in the process, and so were you. When did that start? The day the doctor slapped you on the bottom. The countdown clock was on. And some people didn't make it as far as you have. Right? My dad would get a little discouraged sometimes when he said, Boy, I just can't get up and do some of the things that I used to do. And I said, Dad, you're 84. He said, What's that got to do with it? And I said, Go to a nursing home. There are people that are uh, young enough to be your children that are already in the nursing home. Look at you. And he said, Well, yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah, you got up, you dressed yourself, you ate breakfast, you're doing some things like that. Man, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. But see, we don't like to think about where we are and what is really happening. The reality is you and I are dying. We're shutting down. We're getting ready to lay aside, as Paul said, this temporary earthly tent. Now, what's going to happen after you die? Will you make any impact on the next generation? Will you be prepared to die and show the next generation how a Christian dies? Are your finances in order? Are your bills paid? Right? Have you done your job of leaving a legacy to someone else? This is what Solomon is saying. If you really want to have a successful life, you've got to go to the house of mourning because you are going to be the object of mourning one of these days. And every funeral ought to remind you of that. Maybe that's why I don't like them, right? It ought to be a reminder. Everything here is temporary. This world is not my home. I'm only passing through. My treasure is laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. There's a better day coming. There's a better thing happening, but you better think about it. And some people never think about eternity because they never want to think about judgment. They never want to think about hell. They never want to think about anything like that. It's just party, party, party. Have fun today. And they end up ruining their family, ruining their health, ruining their lives, ruining their reputation, and then dying and going to hell. Boy, that's a sad reality, isn't it? And then you look at some people that all they do is pray a prayer and assume they're going to heaven and they don't really give a rip about anything else. And God says, nope, nope, that's not the way it is. For those of you who are born again, you should know that you're not going to live forever on this earth. You should know that there's a better day coming and you should know that your life is intended to be an investment, a long-term investment that carries on even after you're gone. Read the Hall of Fame of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11 and the Bible. Bible says there that even though they are dead, they still speak. And I want to be a dead person that still speaks. Positively. Can I get an amen on that? But you're not going to do it if you don't think long term. Thirdly, notice Solomon says, the greatest lessons are learned in adversity. And we try to do everything we can to stay away from adversity. 
But the truth of the matter is, he said, sorrow is better than laughter. You know why? Because you don't learn anything when you're laughing. Laughing kind of anesthetizes you to the real pain and the suffering and a lot of times the real issues of life. That's what he means by this. For by a sad countenance, the heart is made better. It's in your storms you really learn how to handle life. It's in your storms that you're made strong. It's when you don't have any place else to go but God and His Word. When people have let you down. When life just stinks. That's when you go to Him. And that's when you really learn something. That's what Solomon is saying. He's not merely being cryptic. He's just simply saying that this is the way we really get something. This is the way we really are changed. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. Why? Because that's where he learns. That's where he grows. That's where he learns how to handle things. That's where he learns to depend upon God's word. Andre Crouch said, if I'd never had a problem, I'd never know that he could solve them. I'd never know what faith in God could do. That's it. And that's what Solomon is saying. So we've got to be careful about all of this and we've got to think because the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. And I think about so many churches now that are almost nothing more than a comedy store. And they leave feeling good. But their soul hadn't been enriched and they hadn't learned how to handle life. And boy, do they ever have a rude awakening coming. That's why we want to emphasize the Word of God. I want to leave you tonight with a plaque that my grandmother gave to my dad. My dad had it for years hanging up. There's a picture of it. And it says Keenan across the front. Just a kind of a crude wood burn thing that she had made for him. And it says, you got it from your father. It was all he had to give. So it's yours to use and cherish as long as you may live. If you lose the watch he gave you, it can always be replaced but a black mark on your name, son, can never be erased. It was clean the day you took it. And a worthy name to bear. When he got it from his father, there was no dishonor there. So make sure you use it wisely. After all is said and done, you'll be glad the name is spotless when you give it to your son. Isn't that good? My dad lived by a code you can sum up in one word, and it was just this, honor, honor. That's not a bad way to live, is it? And Solomon is saying, if you will think about the responsibility you have to someone somewhere and choose that good name, that good name, rather than riches. And if you will think long term, you're going to die. You're not going to be here forever. You won't always be around. Take advantage of what you've got now and think about those kind of things and plan for it and invest in the souls of others. And then you'll understand as you grow older that the problems and the trials you go through in life it wasn't because God lost control. It wasn't because he got mad at you. It wasn't because he forgot his promises. I mean, I heard somebody say in a Bible study one time, well, I wouldn't treat my son that way, so I can't believe that God would ever put his children through that. That person was a fool. To have the audacity to compare your parenthood to God's parenthood, who in the world do you think you are, number one? And secondly, Solomon would say, it's in those trials and in those heartaches that you really learn the things that matter. That's where you learn the things that are going to make you tough and strong and give you something to pass on to the next generation. And all God's people said, think about those three things and ask God to give you the ability to impact those little kids that are in your family to impact the young people in our church. To give us something to share with other people that's a whole lot more than come to Graceway and have a great time. No, come to Graceway and learn how to live. Come to Graceway and learn how to have honor. Come to Graceway and learn how to glorify God. 
Come to Graceway and have something worth passing on to your children and your children's children for the glory of God. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Father, would you forgive us for being faddish, for going with whims, whatever's cool, and at the same time we ignore the deep and rich and powerful and long-lasting principles out of the Word of God. Help us, dear Lord, to live the kind of life by your grace that we do have a good name, that as I said this morning, when we do something that's right, nobody's surprised because they expected it out of us. We're Christians. Help us, Father, to think long-term. I pray that this church has its doors open and has a thriving ministry that lasts until Jesus comes. I pray, Lord, that the people that are here tonight that their family will be strong for Jesus and somebody in their family will be serving Him when the rapture takes place. I pray, Father, that we would also understand these trials that happened to us were not up to the devil. He's not sovereign. These trials that we go through were not just, just the natural rhythm of life. Because the scripture says the steps of the righteous are ordered of God. Help us understand these trials, these obstacles, these hardships are training us so that we have something of substance to give to the next generation and not just some silly cliche or some little cotton candy thing that's not going to get them through the hard times they're going to face because this upcoming generation is going to face things we can't even imagine. Oh, Lord, the privilege that we have to invest in them and to train them and to pour into their lives. What an honor to be their drill instructor and send them off to battles we can't even imagine. So, Lord, it's got to start with us. It's got to start now. And it's got to be real. It's got to be more than just a whim or a nice idea. This is your will. 2 Timothy 2.2 May we be found faithful in that. May we excel in that. And we can only do it by your grace, by your power, and through your word. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.